This is Sarah Kotlova from Impact Naturals, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dreams podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am your host, Robert Miller. My guest in this episode is Lynn Power. Lynn was the former CEO of J. Walter Thompson, New York, one of the world's biggest advertising firms. Talk about a powerful position. But she gave it all up to follow her dream and launch two brands, one of them in premium hair care and the other in bee-powered luxury home fragrance. I have to ask about that one. <laughs> Was she crazy? I don't know. We'll find out. You know, I, I feature one of my songs in every one of these episodes, and I always try to feature a song that somehow relates to my guest or to the subject matter of the interview. In this episode, the song that I am featuring is called Trippin'. It's the title song from the 2018 album by my band, Project Grand Slam. I chose this song because Lynn got on a whole different trip with her brands than when she was at J. Walter Thompson. So I thought, all right, somehow it relates. We'll use that one. <laughs> Lynn Power, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. That was an amazing intro. Thank you. And it's so good to be here. And I think the song that you picked, I haven't heard it. So I will reserve final decision making, but it sounds very appropriate. I would love to get it into an ad at one point. We'll have to talk yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So you have had quite a transition in your life. I want to go back because I like to do this with my guests. When you were young, when you were a little girl, what was your dream? I wanted to be an FBI agent. For real? Uh-huh. Why? That's a really good question. I don't know. I think I like the idea of solving crimes and riddles and puzzles and all that stuff. And when I was in college, I actually was a double major of English and criminal justice because I was naively thinking I was going to go do that. So you were still on the FBI track even when you were in college, you're saying? I didn't know what else to do. It was sort of like, yeah, it was the best option that I could come up with. Okay. But then what happened was I graduated. It was 1989 because I'm, I'm old <laughs> <laughs> and there was a hiring freeze. Basically it was a recession and the government was not hiring at all. So I did like the whole application to the FBI, the background check, you know, the tests, the whole, the whole interview process. And then they sent me a form letter because back in those days it was pre-email, pre-internet and I got a letter saying, good news is, you know, you, you pass the test, but the bad news is there's a long waiting list and we have no idea when it's, um, we're going to hire again. So then I went into advertising. <laughs> <laughs> you know, early on in this podcast, I had a lady on the show who was in the FBI. And oh, I thought really? that was so unusual, but now I've got two that wanted to be in the FBI. She actually did it though. 
Yeah, she did it. Well, I guess she didn't hit the hiring freeze kind of thing. All right. So you decided once the FBI was not going to happen, that's when you decided on advertising? Well, actually, what happened was back in the day to find a job, you had to get the newspaper, pull it open, cut out the little employment ads. Classified ads, ads, yeah. Circle the ones you wanted, cut them out, put them in. So um, I, I actually, there was an ad from a recruiter. Her name was Beverly Von Winkler. It's not a name you forget easily. And she was looking for all kinds of, you know, receptionist, secretary, blah, blah, blah. So I went and met with her. I was living in Chicago. I was living at my parents' house, but I went and met uh, with her at her office and she had me do a typing test. And I'm a really, really good typist, like really good. All right. Hold on. I got to stop you. What do you mean? Really good. Like how many words per minute? You know, I don't know if I've tested myself in like the last decade, but like, like I can type as fast as you speak. Basically, you know, you know, the crazy thing is when I was in school, I'm even older than you. OK, yeah. When I was in school, my mother asked me to take one course, which was a typing course in elementary school, which I took. And when, by the time I got to college, I was the only person in my area of my dormitory that could actually touch type. And it was one of the best skills that I ever learned was yes, how to type. Thank you. It's so helpful. And I type so fast and I don't have to look at the keys. And it's just been a really helpful skill. And it got me my first job because, yeah, Beverly Von Winkler was like, wow, you're a really good typist. I'm going to go send you to an interview at this agency. They're looking for a receptionist. You're going to love it. She says to me, Lynn, you're going to love it. Just go. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, I, I guess so. I don't, you know, advertising. All right. And so she literally just sent me on the interview. I, I met with this woman who was lovely, Gail Fields, and they hired me on the spot because look, let's face it. It was a receptionist job. It wasn't a super high bar. I was a breathing human who could, you know, you were a college graduate. Come on. I was a college graduate. I could type, I could answer the phones. And so they hired me literally on the spot. And was this a J Walter Thompson? No, gosh, no. This was a very small agency in Chicago called Jack Levy. And the cool thing about that was when you start with a small agency, instead of a huge agency where I ended up, you get to really be hands-on and kind of like figure out who does what, you know what I mean? Cause I knew nothing about advertising. So I was just trying to figure out the basic lay of the land. Like, okay, there are people that do creative things. Hmm. That's not really me. Okay. There are people that do business. Okay. That's more me. Okay. But then there's different flavors, right? Like there's different roles. And so you really get to see when you're like a fly on the wall, like a receptionist. Yeah. You know, everything. Yeah. You're like a sponge. And you're just sort of soaking it all in. And then I did that. And about six, it, it was about six months later, they promoted me to like, I don't know, it was like a account coordinator on the Pizza Hut account, you know? And so. Wait a I minute. Just, what did that mean? Did you get free pizza at least? Oh, all kinds of Pizza Hut pizza, though. That's, That's what, what I think. <laughs> yeah. So lots of Pizza Hut pizza. But yeah, I and and I just, I just, you know, what I loved about it was. It's a business environment where you're solving business challenges, but you're using creativity as a business tool. Probably not so different than what you do in your life, right? Like bringing creativity into sort of a business setting makes it interesting and fun. And 
and that's what I really enjoyed. And, and, and I just, it just stuck. I just really loved it. And so I, I was in Chicago for about four years. And then I moved to New York with my boyfriend, who's now my husband, who I met at Ogilvy and Mather and um, just, you know, worked my way up the New York agencies. So you went from this agency in Chicago. Yeah. And then you went to New York next. Then I went to Ogilvy and Mather in Chicago. That's another biggie, right? It's another biggie, but their Chicago office wasn't massive. It was like 200 people. And that was cool. And I really enjoyed the people I worked with a lot. And then, and then what happened was Ogilvy, this was, boy, this 1994, they had won the IBM account globally in New York. So they were suddenly desperate to hire whoever would move to New York to work on this account, right? Because they're just like trying to fill the seats. And my husband, who I just started dating, raised his hand and he's like, I want to go. So I kind of had this, you know, moment where it was like, why not me too? Because, you know, if I'm going to have a career in advertising, you got to be in New York. I mean, so my thought process was, even if the relationship doesn't last, my career will have benefited. And if I hate New York, I can always move back. You know what I mean? It's like, but then it ended up being, I'm still here. <laughs> so, and you're still with him, I assume. And I'm still with him. And right. 30 so years it, later. Is it still Madison Avenue centered? That was always the place for advertising in New York City. You know, the funny thing is, it was when I got there, but I think the last agency that was on Madison Avenue moved off, which was YR. They merged with an agency called VML a couple of years ago. And I think they actually moved out of their Madison Avenue offices. So I don't even think there may be one or two small ones, but there are no big agencies on Madison Avenue anymore. You know, it's the same thing in so many other industries. I know, like, for example, with law firms, you know, you used to hear the expression Wall Street law firms. Yeah. And there's hardly any law firms of any size that are still on Wall Street. They they all moved to Midtown and the West side and all of that. But, you know, there's a certain name and a certain kind of image that goes along with all these different industries. And for advertising it was always Madison Avenue. I know. And that is kind of ironic that it really, there is no real Madison Avenue anymore. But so when you started in advertising, did each agency have its roster of, of clients that were with them forever? Or were you constantly fighting over clients? And were they moving around from one agency to another? What was it like back then? It was a little bit of both, but it was more loyal than it is now. Because it was it was definitely more like the clients looked at the agency like a real brand partner. And there was a little bit of that Don Draper thing going on where it was like, we don't know what you do or how you do it, but you do it. And now, because everything is so analytical and data centric, clients think that they can do the agency's job. So it's a completely different dynamic. It's like the idea of like coming up with creative ideas and having the creative people, you know, magically solve problems. It, it, it exists, but in a different way, it's just not the same. So have they brought it in-house? A lot of clients are moving their business in-house, which from a from a financial perspective, I understand because you know agencies were making a lot of money and but 
I think it's really my own perspective. I think it's really hard to stay fresh and have new ideas if you're only working on one thing all the time. Like say you're working on Verizon every single day for years. Do you know what I mean? Like that's one of the benefits of being in the agency business is getting to work on all different businesses. I mean, I went from pizza to American Express to tampons to booze, <laughs> to, you know what I mean? Like to beauty, you get to work on everything. You don't get tired or sick of these things after. Well, it's always like something new. That's, that's the thing. I feel like if you're somebody who's sort of curious and, and like I am, I'm always just trying to like, I don't know, I'm, there's always something new to figure out. And if you like learning things and if you like different industries, you know, then advertising is great. You'll never be bored because you always get to work on different stuff. All right. You know what ticks me off though? You used to have in advertising all these great jingles. I know. Okay? There's no more jingles. What what happened? You know what? I agree with you. Those jingles are some of the most memorable and sort of iconic, right? You'll wonder where, where the, the yellow, yellow went when you brush your teeth with Pepsodent. You know, stuff oh like that. God. It stays yeah. with you your whole life. I know. I think the power of the jingle has been lost. I agree with you. Somebody's got to bring it back. Not only has it been lost, but the, the musicians that used to make the jingles, I mean, that business is gone because yeah. there aren't jingles anymore. Same thing with television shows. There used to be, you know, these, I guess, you know, musical introductions to television shows. There's a holdup in the Bronx. Brooklyn's broken out in fights. There's a traffic jam in Harlem that's backed up to Jackson Heights. There's a scout troop short a child. Cruise ships do an idle wild. Car 54, where are you? I guess you can call them jingles as well. Yeah. Theme songs. Yeah, theme songs. You know, like the Flintstones. Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. They're the modern Stonehenge family. From the town of Bedrock, they're a place right out of history. Let's ride with the family down the street. Through the courtesy of Fred and Pete. When you're with the Flintstones, have a yabba dabba tea time. You don't hear that anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Because it's true. It's like if you hear one of those, like you just said, Flintstones, I know instantly what you're talking about. And if you hear those, it's like it's like brings you back. It's nostalgia, you know? It, it's such an identification. I'll tell you a little story. I was in Ireland. This is a long, long time ago with my family. And we were driving across the country with a driver. And we didn't have anything to say for the first hour. And then he turns to me and he says, did you used to watch a lot of television in the United States? I said, yes, of course. Well, we spent the next two hours singing all the theme songs from all the American oh. shows. He knew every single word, That's Car so 54, funny. et cetera. You know, that kind of culture travels around the world. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, I think now everything is so um, transactional and fast. You know what I mean? It's it's just doesn't they, people don't think about building brands the same way anymore. It's just very much like in the moment. So it's a different it's a different skill. So the the transition in your advertising career, you started out, you're answering phones, you're pointing people in whatever direction they needed to go as the receptionist. Then you get into kind of the real advertising world. Somehow you wind up as the CEO. 
So you really climbed the ladder. Tell us how that all came about. Well, I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, you know you what must it have is? impressed somebody. I think it's just, I think there was a moment though. Okay. I'm being a little whatever snarky, but I, I do think there was a moment where I kind of recognized that I had to take control of my own career. Like nobody else is going to do it for me. And I would see men being promoted faster and more aggressively and all that. And I realized like, well, you know, it's my own fault if I'm not telling people what I want and if I'm not being more demanding. And it took me years to figure that out, by the way. I'm making it sound like it was like so easy and such an epiphany, but I was in my mid thirties probably until I, and when I realized like, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. I need to be more assertive and I need to be clearer about what I'm looking for. But that's not just you. And that's not just advertising. That's for women in general. Yes. And I see a lot of women struggle with the same thing. And I think a lot of us feel like our hard work should speak for itself. And that, you know, I have a very strong work ethic. My parents were both entrepreneurs. Like I, you know, so I always kind of would be annoyed when my work wouldn't be recognized. But then I started to realize, well, wait, the guys are out there talking about themselves and merchandising themselves and getting credit. And I'm not, I'm just putting my head down and doing the job. So I need to be better at, you know, that side of it. And I think I also had this sort of revelation that a lot of the role models I had in the business were men were, I had some great male bosses, by the way, I I'm, I'm not a gender, like men, men are bad. Women are good. Some of my best bosses were men. Some of my worst bosses were women. So there was that, but I, I had this realization that if I'm going to be successful, it's got to be in my own style and my own way, because I can't act like these guys. It's just not me. I'm not, I'm not a bully. I'm not like, I'm not a, a, an arrogant person at all. So, so for me to sort of like have to sort of put on a little bit of, you know, um, a show, if you will, and advertising, you know, kind of like, you know, it just wasn't my style. And once I got comfortable with that's okay, like I could be myself, I could be vulnerable. I could, you know, do things a different way. That's when I really started to see my career take off, to be honest, because it was either going to work or wasn't, you know what I mean? Like people are going to either accept you as a leader and accept your judgment and your decisions and your, you know, your leadership style and all that, or they're going to reject it. And you know, I think fortunately for me, it was, it wasn't, it was easy actually to, to sort of just kind of go, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. Was your husband in advertising at the same time? Were you on parallel paths? Yes. And he was also an account guy. So we, we had very similar existences, although he did go to the client side a couple of times and then come back. But yeah, it was, it's one of those things where, you know, people ask me, what's it like to like work with your husband? And I think for us, it was really great because advertising is crazy. I mean, some of the things that happen to you during the day, and I'm not talking about like me too crazy, although there are those moments too. I'm just saying crazy, crazy, like clients making weird, bad decisions that are illogical, that are based in nothing but fear. You know what I mean? That, that, you know, you try to explain to somebody, well, how did that get approved? 
or why would that get approved or why didn't that get approved? You know, and you can't because it's, it's emotional. It's not logical. And so I think um, having someone else in the business who understood that some days are going to be like that. And by the way, some days, especially when we have little kids, I'm going to be working till midnight because guess what? Something blew up and we're in a client service business and you have to deal with it. You know what I mean? So it's like that kind of business where it's, it's got enough unpredictability to make it a little crazy. And then there's, of course, if a client fires an agency, which happens all the time, usually the people that were associated with that account, you know, get fired also. Oh, really? You get the X, huh? So it's, it's a very, uh, you know, um, turmoil ridden industry in the sense of there's not massive stability. You know what I mean? But were you and your husband kind of competitive at the same time? Cause you're, you're both in the same industry. You're both on the, you know, doing more or less the same kind of work that, that would, that would be an unusual circumstance. I think. I think for us, it was more like you have somebody who understands, like I could come home and go, Oh my God, I can't believe what happened today in this meeting. And he'd be like, Oh my God, like that, you know, like having somebody who can appreciate that, but no, it was never really like super competitive. Did he ever try to steal your clients? Come on. Maybe he didn't. I don't know it. (laughs) It wasn't successful. Did you ever steal his clients? No, I never did. Because this is the other thing. He's a car guy. He grew up in Detroit. Uh So he liked working on car accounts. I am the last person to work on a car account. It's so not interesting to me. So we had our niches. Like, you know what I mean? I was more beauty. He was more like automotive and finance and that kind of stuff. And, And that sort of made it a little bit different too. So we weren't like tripping over each other. All right. That sounds good. Hey, everybody. My Follow Your Dream Handbook is an Amazon number one bestseller. It's a combination memoir of my unique musical journey and a step-by-step how-to for you to follow and succeed at your dream. It's available at Amazon and wherever books are sold. Check it out today. All right. So I want to hear about your meteoric rise to the top. (laughs) Tell us how that happened. Well, I mean, I, I was running a smaller agency, Arnold's, which I really loved. I was there eight years and really built up the New York office and really enjoyed it. It was a great culture. And then they brought in a new CEO who was absolutely terrible, like really a disaster. And it was one of those moments in my life, which I've now had several. <laughs> now it's becoming a theme, but this was the first time that it happened where you kind of go, why am I doing this? I'm too old for this shit. Why am I doing this? And then you realize like, oh, wait a minute. I don't have to do this. I could quit. (laughs) And so my husband was the one when I was at Arnold and I was clashing with this, this new CEO constantly. He said to me, this is ridiculous. You're miserable. Just leave. And I was like, wait, I I can leave. Like I could do that. (laughs) Cause it really hadn't occurred to me that I could just quit. Cause I'm such like a a team player. Like I'm always like, I wouldn't want to be the person to abandon the team or leave people high and dry. You know what I mean? So it just was like one of those things where I kind of was like, Oh my God, I could quit. So I did, I left, I took the summer off. I drove across the country with my kids and my dog. And about two weeks into my newfound freedom, I got a call from my friend, Peter Sherman, who was a JWT who had just taken the job that I was about to end up taking. 
And he was like, oh my God, dude. I knew him from BBDO. He said, I just got to JWT. It's an absolute mess. I really need help. I really need help. You got to come work with me. And I'm like, I just left. Like I'm literally just decompressing, you know? So then of course he was like, let's just have a drink. Just one drink. Well, you know what happens. Uh, That was your mistake, huh? That was my mistake. That led to like, (laughs) oh, now just meet a couple more people. No, just have one more. And then before I knew it, four months had flown by and I'm accepting a job. All right. So what, what did it mean? What, when you were the CEO, you ran the joint. I ran the New York office, which is the headquarters. So um, JWT at the time, it doesn't exist anymore, by the way, if people don't realize that it, it Wait, was the, the firm doesn't exist. No, it got, mer- it got, it got mer- the firm. It got merged with another company. So it's now called Wonderman Thompson. So the brand of J. Walter Thompson, which was the oldest advertising right. agency in the world. And when I was there, 153 years, that's how old the agency was. I mean, that's freaking old. And they just blew away the whole they name. They just huh? blew it all up. Fortunately, after I was gone. So I didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, but wow. um, but yeah, I was there four years. It was a very difficult job. Two years into my job, there was a very public lawsuit um, filed against my direct boss, our, our, our global CEO. And it was just incredibly painful. It was really, really difficult for employees. It was difficult for clients. We couldn't pitch new business. This was a personal lawsuit or a business lawsuit or what? It was, it was, a, it was like a sexual harassment lawsuit oh. that our head of corporate communications, which is basically our global PR person, filed against our global CEO. And we read about it in the New York Post. Like a Harvey Weinstein kind of deal. Yeah, that's how we found out about it. So it was, so I dealt with that. And so then, you know, I, it, it was another one of those situations where I had the same kind of realization that I had at Arnold, but I was felt a little more obligated to sort of stick it out until that was sort of sorted. But it was like, I'm not having fun. I'm dealing with legal, HR, finance, like all the stuff that I don't really enjoy and all the creative and the fun stuff is so far from what I do every day that I just, it was like one of those moments where you go, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm the boss, but it's not a fun. It's not always fun being the boss. People don't realize that. Yeah, That's true. So how does it feel? I mean, you've kind of gone up the ladder. You got to the top, so to speak of the ladder. Now you've kind of branched out your, you could be a client, I guess, of an advertising agency. I don't know if you are or are not. I am not. How does it how does it feel to have taken that whole trip? Now I'm feeling better about the song that I picked for this episode too. I think your song is very appropriate. I so I I'm loving what I'm doing now. It's it's you know what? In a way, I feel like my advertising career, even though it was so corporate in a lot of ways, it really prepared me because you know branding, marketing, you know figuring out how to do stuff scrappy, figuring out content. I mean, that's all stuff I've been doing. You know, for the last however many years. So that part of my job is easy and comes just, it's just second nature to me. And the fun part now is I don't have a client. I am either my best or worst client, put it that way. (laughs) So it's like, I get to make the decisions and I live by them or die by them. And it is what it is, but that's liberating because for someone who's been basically at the beck and call of clients, you know, my entire life, it's like really nice to finally feel like I can do it my way. Now you're free. Now I'm free. It, it feels that way. So it's been really, 
yeah, liberating is the best word I can use. Um, but I don't miss the advertising industry at all. People ask me all the time and I'm like, God, no, I would never go back. Well, you've, you were been there, done that. And yeah, you know, they're it's, done that. I mean, okay. exactly. You got a new world that you're part of now. So, you know, at this point in my discussions with people, I usually ask, and I'm going to ask you this. This is a podcast about people following their dreams, about being inspired and motivated to follow whatever that dream is that they have. And I believe that everybody starts out with a dream. Most people never pursue their dream because life gets in the way, marriage, kids, obligations, debts, whatever. But you're somebody that has followed your dream. You got into advertising. You've now gotten onto the product side of things. So it's a really nice trip that you've taken here. What would be your advice to the dreamers out there, the people that have never followed their dream or that maybe they did follow it, but they just haven't moved it anywhere? Boy, you know, there are so many people I know who are sad and complacent and too afraid to do anything about it. And I was 52. Wait, how old am I now? <laughs> I have to do the math. <laughs> okay, I was I was I was I was 51 when I left JWT. 53 when I launched Masami. So I'm 54 now. But my my advice is like don't wait. I mean, because once you make the leap, it's not as scary as you think and you're not getting any younger. So um, I would also say, follow your gut, you know, like our guts are pretty good at guiding us and directing us. And I think, you know, if somebody really has a desire to do something, but they're holding on to a paycheck or the security or just the complacency or just the known, you know, I get that. But at the same time, you're missing out on all this cool stuff that you could be doing that is so much more liberating. And like I said, you're not getting any younger. So by the time you finally work up the courage, you know, you, you don't want it to be like, okay, you know, you're 75 years old, and you're finally doing it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm sure there are plenty, you know what I mean? Like, but I just, I just see people, most of the people I know, always say they wish they had done it sooner. That's almost always the thing. We've been talking here to Lynn Power. I thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast, Lynn. Here are the key takeaways from my interview with Lynn Power. Don't wait to act on your dream. Do it now. It's just not as scary as you may think. Follow your gut and network with people to prepare to take action. And uh, now we're going to listen again to the song that I played underneath the introduction. We always play these things at the end as well. It's my song called Trippin' from the 2018 album uh, by my band Project Grand Slam. Thanks so much, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.